Father, I'm reminded of the angels that surround your throne, calling out, Holy, Holy, Holy. Lord, you are holy. You are mighty. Lord, you're the only one that is due our praise and our worship. We thank you and we praise you this day. Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts as we look into your word. As a matter of continuation of our worship to you this entire morning. We pray that we would take from here the things that you would have for us. That we would live lives worthy of your calling. It is to this end that we pray through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. In the spring of uh, 1987, so if you want to figure out how old I am, here's an easy way to do it. In the spring of 1987, I graduated from DTS. That was exactly one half life ago. So uh, Barbara and I had gone through some specialized training, and we were headed to the Middle East uh, to aid in the Lord's work there. It was a really exciting time. Uh, however, we needed to raise support. And I don't mind telling you that raising support is a daunting process. Most people in churches were and are already committed. But nevertheless, the Lord raised for us prayer and financial support. And one way to generate support is to work oneself. And so uh, I went back up to Alaska where the pay was much higher and already had some connections up there. And so I painted and uh, was able to put some money away for our expenses. Barbara and the girls would stay in Washington State for a few months while we gathered our resources. Now, the year before I graduated from uh, Dallas Seminary, the elders in the chapel in Alaska uh, where Barbara grew up, her father was one of the elders till they moved down to Seattle, and it's the chapel where I came to know the Lord. Well, they had some issues to work through, and so they contacted at what at that time was called Interest Ministries. And ultimately, Mark and Carol Porter came up, and they spent some time with them and were, were able to really help them out a great deal. Greg Johnson, a friend of mine, who had become an elder while I was at a seminary, uh, wrote as a part of the review from his time up there, uh, at the time Mark and Carol were at Denali Bible Chapel, we were in a state of confusion. Many people were angry and bitter over various things, and the porters were able to uh, help us. Well, over the course of the next year, they also decided that they would like a, uh, a full-time worker. So they invited, invited uh, Mark and Carol uh, back up to, to discuss the process of how do you get one of these strange uh, breeds and who, who and, uh, might be willing and who might be able. Uh, hard, to, hard to come by in 1987. And so it was in the late summer of 1987 that we had a entire meeting of the church. I was there earning uh, money, painting homes, and was just the observer waiting to go to the Middle East. I think it was Greg Johnson 
who, who said, well, what, what if we found an interim until we could find someone permanent? So in unison, pretty much, every eye turned on moi. Uh, so anyway, Mark said this. He said, well, I usually don't recommend someone from inside the body while there are issues going on because, you know, sides tend to get concretized and people get all with one another. So you want somebody from the outside. But because he's been gone for the last six years, uh, I recommend that you consider asking John to be your interim full-time worker. So this was in the meeting of the full church. This is going on. So I am two things at the same time. One is I am flattered and two, I was terrified. I had never actually um, looked at working, doing pastoral ministry in a church. My goal was mission work. And, uh, but anyway, I pondered the opportunity. I called Barb, uh, who was still in Seattle. And even though there, were, there was a fair amount of hesitation, uh, we accepted on the condition that my first action would be to establish a search committee. And, and so it was uh, that uh, Greg Johnson and I began the search. So I went down to Seattle. I got Barb and the girls. We went back up to Alaska for what we thought would be six months. It, it, it's a long story, but it turned into a considerably longer time than that. But within two months, we had lined up some candidates that we wanted to go interview. So that uh, one week in uh, February, we went down there and we interviewed about six candidates. One of them we lost immediately when they said, A.K., I thought that was Arkansas. I'm not going to Alaska. Okay. But anyway, uh, Eureka, we found a couple of very solid uh, uh, candidates, and we were, we were both quite excited when we flew back to Fairbanks on Friday night. The next morning, the phone rings around 7 a.m., and it's the doctor. I love, we've got some doctors in here, so they'll understand this. The doctor uh, asked to speak with Barb, and he says this, if it wouldn't be too inconvenient, would you come by my office as soon as you can? I'll be waiting. <laughs> so we did. To make a really long story short, which is in fact a whole other story, Barb had gotten a CAT scan while Greg and I were away and the results were in. And as it turned out, Barb had a large brain tumor and it was impinging on some very delicate uh, areas in her brain. It required immediate surgery. The problem was Fairbanks, there was no person who could do it and we didn't have the facility for it. He recommended that we go to the Mayo Clinic to have it done. Uh, however, he said, there was one man, because he was just an outdoors crazy man, who actually had the skill set to do this. And in Anchorage, there was one hospital that had the facility to do this. So I, we asked, how long is this process going to take? Well, it could take up to several months between the surgery, the recovery, the radiation, and so forth before she could travel. So, okay, Anchorage it was. At least I could drive to Anchorage. I couldn't drive to the Mayo Clinic. So, in essence... 
we were having tremendous success. We were moving forward. The church was moving forward. Barbara and I were moving forward. Everybody was going where they wanted to go, being where they wanted to be. And then suddenly, and without warning, everything changed. Yeah, I mean, have you ever had a moment in your life when you're enjoying life all is well? In fact, you're having so much fun, time was flying, you know, and then something rocks your world. I don't know if during that time, if you ever noticed the difference between your perception of time. Have you ever had dinner with friends and you're just going on and on and on and then for whatever reason, somebody happens to see their phone or their watch and it's like, oh my, do you know what time it is? And that time just... It just seemed to have raced by time flew. But when things are going wrong and you're awake at 2 a.m. in the morning, every tick of the clock seems like an eternity. Have you ever noticed that? I think it's a common experience for all of us. That's how, uh, by the way, Albert Einstein described his theory of relativity. Now, you have to understand that when he said this, he was actually talking to his executive secretary. He wasn't talking to a group of scientists. But this is what he said to explain it to her. Put your hand on a hot stove for a minute and it seems like an hour. Sit with a pretty girl for an hour and it seems like a minute. That's relativity. But the burning question when your hand is on the stove, pun intended, is how long will this go on? You know, any kind of special forces training, which my grandson will soon find out, includes some version of crossing the finish line only to be told, finish line? That's not the finish line. The finish line is on the top of that hill because that reflects real life. Did you know in real life there are no finish lines? There aren't any. It is a continuous and continuing journey, not a destination. And suffering people, when they're feeling pain, they want to know how long will this go on? For the people of Israel and the world during the end times, which we've been looking at, in both Daniel and the book of Revelation, this was a burning question. And in fact, it was Daniel's burning question. How long will this be? Because he's been seeing these visions. He knows what's coming. And the book answers that question. Let's read Daniel chapter 12. And we'll begin in verse 5. We'll pop back later to verse 1. But... We'll start in verse 5, Daniel chapter 12, verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, 
He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, oh, my Lord, what what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Now, Daniel here had witnessed a dialogue. There are these two figures, one on each side of the stream. And someone asked, how long will it be? How long to the end of these wonders? And when you take wonders here, you have to understand that Daniel knows what he's talking about. He's talking about the uh, very, very difficult time, a time that we know of as the great tribulation. How long will this suffering last? And the one of one of the beings, one at the head of the waters, he raised both hands to God and swore that it would be a time, times and half a time. As best as I can tell, this is the only place in the entire word of God. And I can actually find no other place Uh, I haven't researched every place, obviously, where the swearing was done with both the right and the left hand. Swearing is always done with the raising of the right hand. Yet here we have the swearing that's done with both hands. And I believe that that is to reflect the weightiness, the importance, the solemnity of what he is saying here. I mean, oftentimes people of God raise both hands to God, but not in the taking of an oath. They do that in worship and praise. Empty handed we come. I'm reminded of Revelation chapter eight and verse one, where you have the opening of the seventh seal. And there was silence for a space of about a half an hour in heaven. Now, I don't know how long or how active verbally or in any other way, noise goes on in heaven. But it must be remarkable because it says that there was a space of about a half an hour and it marked the same thing, the significance, the solemnity, the gravity, the weight of what was happening when he opened that seventh seal and marking all of this, the apocalypse. Which, interestingly enough, the angel had just told Daniel, the words are shut up and sealed. But revelation is the unsealing, the opening of the words. Now, we know in this case with Israel, we know this generally as believers, that when we are weak, he is strong. With Israel, in particular, in the end times, It is at their most helpless and hopeless that the kingdom shall appear. He says, when you think not. Well, when do you think not? It's when you've given up. It's when you no longer believe that it will happen, at least not in the moment that you can be consciously aware of or alive. You know, you've already given up. And this 
this notion that some in the church have that the church is moving in triumphal procession towards bringing holiness to the earth is not, not a biblical concept. Christ will do that. Christ will usher the kingdom in. And not in some casual and long extended way over thousands of years. Christ will come. And when he comes, well, we'll read what he says in just a few minutes. Daniel witnessed this conversation. He didn't make any sense out of it. That happens. That happens. Uh, that happens often when I'm reading the scripture. What I feel like the Ethiopian eunuch. Well, Lord, what does this? What does this mean? And and so Daniel does the same thing that I would do. He asks questions. So he asks. Again, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And the answer was, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the end times. These words are not for you. None of us likes to hear that. I mean, how often have you been in prayer and you're thinking and you're praying through something and it's always yes, no or wait But have you ever given option to the thought where the Lord says, this is not for you. This is for someone else. Daniel, in fact, wrote these words in order to preserve these words for an entire generation not yet born. These words are not for you, Daniel. You are writing them for those who are living at the time of the end. In a way, this was a blessing to Daniel because... This uh, being, this angel was telling uh, Daniel that you will end your days in peace and rest until the resurrection. But interestingly enough, he received clarification anyway in verse 11. And from that time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Dan spoke of this last week. Three and one-half years. Does that sound familiar? It should. What Daniel is so concerned about is how long will the suffering of his people go on? That three and a half years is the answer. This is the end of the end times. This is the second half of the tribulation, the great tribulation. And at that time, verse 1 tells us that Michael, the angel Michael, will arise to defend the people of Israel. At what time? Well, chapter 11, verse 40. And remember, chapters and verses are an artificial construct. They help us find things, but that's all they are. It's a it's an organizational system. It's a reference system. It's not Scripture. It's, it, so when we look back, we're looking back at just a paragraph or so earlier. At what time? At the time of the end. And throughout the Bible, there's a time for everything. Or as Francis Schaeffer opened his great work, How Should We Then Live? with the line, There is... A flow to history. You see, while history appears to be random and chaotic, in fact, it's firm. It has direction. And even as we see our 
foundations being rattled by COVID-19 and social unrest. The word of God says, be at peace for such times are necessary before the Lord makes everything right. I mean, Jesus himself acknowledges this in Matthew 24. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. And then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Now, while this is a double reference or a specific reference to the tribulation, I don't know. But we see these things happening in our world today. So when you see Jesus goes on, because I'll tell you who Jesus is talking about right now. What had Jesus been reading? What was Jesus pondering when he made and said those words that are recorded for us in Matthew 24? So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Jesus himself is opening the words that were sealed by Daniel. He's beginning to open these and we see them opened even more in the book of Revelation. And I believe that there will be a special wisdom given by God to those men and women who are living in those final days to see and to understand. In fact, the last line that he says, but for the sake of the elect... Those days will be cut short because just before that he said, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. And so it seems our foundations are rattled. It seems that there are things that are taking place in our time, and this isn't exclusive to us, but we know one thing for certain, we are nearer to the time of the end than a generation ago or a moment ago even. So how do we maintain peace in all of that? I've shared the story before, what not this part of uh, Eric Moody, who was the pilot of a British Airways flight that that managed to fly through, uh, unbeknownst to them at the time, a volcanic cloud that had been thrown up by uh, Mount uh, Golongan in Indonesia in 1982. And all four of the engines stopped. 
And for 15 minutes, 15 minutes, this jet glided as far as it could until they were just moments, moments from crash landing into the ocean. They couldn't see out of the windscreen. The ash was thick and it had had, uh, etched some of the glass. It had messed up their electronics. But I tell you what he did. He made an announcement over the airplane intercom about 14,000 feet, knowing that all of his attentions would be turned towards landing that aircraft as best he could in the middle of an ocean where they doubtless would never have been found. This is what he said. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's Captain Eric Moody here. We've got a small problem in that all four engines have failed. We're doing our utmost to get them going, and I trust you're not in too much distress. (laughs) That's exactly what he said. Interestingly enough, not everybody, but many on that flight were comforted because he spoke with calm assurance and confidence that they were going to get those engines going again. And sure enough, they did. Literally literally moments before they were to crash into the ocean, those Rolls-Royce engines roared to life. <laughs> and even when they were to get, they, they landed and they were to get on planes to go some other place, they, they wouldn't get on the planes until he showed up. <laughs> until they heard his voice. You see, our confidence does not come from what we see happening around us, from where we think we see history going and the future. It comes when we listen to Christ. It comes when we listen to His Word and the confidence that He has. The question for the believer is not what's happening around us, but it's who are we looking to? Who do we look to for peace? If our hearts are out of sort, understand this. These things must happen. Christ is on His throne. There is no chaos. It only appears to be so. And the question for us when we look at prophecy is not how long, even if we are suffering, but rather it's how does prophecy inform our lives? Simply because we know something is going to take place or must take place, so what? What does that do for us now? Or as Francis Schaeffer asked the question, how should we then live? The Apostle Paul, even uh, uh, Peter, puts it in context and even more bluntly. He says this, do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth And the works that are done on it will be exposed. 
since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord? Let me give you uh, just a couple of takeaways from this as I see it from this passage. First, ultimately and temporally, we will know deliverance from the time of distress. You know, at the time of distress here in verse 1, the great archangel Michael arises and God sends out this most powerful angel that we're aware of to do combat. Anyone who knows anything about military strategy knows that you do not risk your senior leaders. They they strategize. They, They direct. They're the ones who say, go here, go there. But what we have here is Michael himself directly in battle on behalf of God's people. If, my, if God will send out Michael, will he withhold his angelic forces for you? He will not. You are a child of God. Allow me to make a statement about the unseen world just here. The greatest and most powerful forces in the world are not Militaries, they're not Wall Street, they're not politicians. They are, in fact, unseen. They are heavenly powers. And yes, there is a battle that rages, but on our side, there are unseen legions standing behind the people of God. Unseen, inaudible, even inconceivable. The Apostle Paul tells us, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, I has seen. It's unseen, or ear heard, it's inaudible. The heart of man can imagine. It's inconceivable. What God has prepared, those who love Him, these things God has revealed to us through His Spirit. Michael arises. We see him again in the book of Jude and also in Revelation. He's responsible for protecting the people whose names are written in the book of life. Just a note. In the book of Jude, we witness this dispute uh, between Michael and Satan over the the body of Moses. Uh, Michael did not dare to bring an accusation, a slanderous accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, there are many places we could go with that, but what I want to go to more than anything is that Michael and Satan... And why we're told this, I don't exactly know, but I do know this, that death conveys a time of separation. A time of separation. We all go somewhere. You know, you'll hear Christians say, this world is not my home. 
Well, you know, an unbeliever can say exactly the same thing. This world is not my home. This world is not our home at all. We're going someplace. Death conveys this separation. We're going somewhere, some to glory, and some out of the presence of God. Second, there is resurrection in 2 and 3, and many in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 12, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Death does not end our lives. The angel assured Daniel that his last breath on earth would not be the end of his life. The psalmist wrote, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Philippians 2 tells us that to live is Christ. To die is gain. What greater gain can there be than Christ? It's to be with Him. The pain that we suffer that seems to go on day by day without end, will in fact one day end. Your distress, whatever distress that you are in right now, it will end. It will be over. It is not forever. While the time of our distress with Barb's surgery and Radiation therapy and recovery and ongoing impact uh, seemed to last forever. It, in fact, does not. All distress is temporary for the believer because we have something else. We have a marvelous inheritance. Listen to God's word to Daniel in verse 13. You shall rest and stand in your allotted place at the end of days. Do you know that you have an allotted place in glory? What an amazing thought. You have an inheritance. And of course, the grandest and the greatest of all these is God himself. You are my portion. So many times it's said in the word of God. We will stand in our allotted place. I mean, many people argue over the meaning of the book of Daniel and also of the book of Revelation. For Daniel, Daniel 12 is the final word. No more stories, no more angels. The final word of God to Daniel, seal up the book. Daniel was sealed. Revelation is unsealed. But what do they both mean? I can tell you in one word, victory. The final word is victory. The victory over pain. The victory over death. The victory over poverty and suffering. Alienation. Bullying. Lying. Sin. Injustice. Victory. Because the one who is righteous gave his life and rose victorious from the grave to rule and to reign 
at the allotted time forever and ever. Amen. Father, we do not know the time of Your return. But Lord, we do know that it's sooner than it was yesterday. We pray, Father, as Your timetable unfolds, that we, through Your Word, might keep a weather eye out, might be able to see on the horizon the things that must be. And Lord, in view of that, not to lose heart or to lose hope, but rather ask in the time that we have remaining today, how should we then live? What manner of people ought we to be? To walk in holiness and godliness, compassion for one another, forgiving one another, giving space for repentance and reconciliation, having hearts of love, not stone. Allow us, Lord, through the power of Your Spirit, through Your Son, Jesus Christ, to be the kind of people that bring You glory and honor in Your most holy name we pray. Amen.